Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. As I said a moment ago, we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight. Really, this should take two weeks for us to get through the next three chapters. I'm going to try to do it all tonight. I like the parts of the Bible that intersect with actual human history. I like it when prophecies are so specific about certain areas and certain things that are going to happen that are geographically based, talking about a particular area and how it's going to change its climate or change its environment, because you can actually check that. You can say, okay, the Bible prophesies this, and then you can go look at human history and see whether it actually happened or not. And so the next three chapters of the book of Ezekiel, starting at chapter 26, are God's prophecies against the city of Tyre. And unlike chapter 25, where four different cities are mentioned in one chapter, it takes three chapters to talk about Tyre. Tyre is intimately involved with Israel, and they have openly mocked the fact that Israel has fallen. And so now God says, through Ezekiel, that he is going to take out his vengeance, his wrath is going to be poured on Tyre. Now, the ancient city of Tyre does not exist as a city because God said he was going to destroy it. And then he said that it was going to become a rock where people would dry their fishing nets. At the time, Tyre is both an inland city and a subsidiary city called Sidon that is growing crops and helping to feed the island. But the island which is in the Mediterranean Sea, which was commonly known as New Tyre, is a completely walled city with 150 feet high walls all the way around the outer coast of an island. And in most places, the wall is practically right up to the coastline. So there's really no land where an army can amass and attack the walls. Because by the time you get to Tyre, they see your ships coming, and they'll sink your ships for you. So as a consequence, pretty much everybody did some kind of dealing, some kind of trading with Tyre. Tyre, of course, became seafaring people, had lots of ships, and was very involved in, in mercantile, in trading, in moving stuff around via their ships. And we're going to see all of that in what God is going to say to them. God is going to say, you were a great city. You had all the advantages. Everything was good for you. But then your heart got lifted up, and then you took offense, or you started mocking my people. And therefore, even though you are a great and impregnable city, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to raise you down to the rock, and you're never going to be built up like this again. Well, to this day... You can get a map, and you can look at modern Lebanon, and you can see where Tyre used to be. And now, instead of being an island, it's a peninsula. It's an isthmus. What happened to it, and we'll get to it in a few minutes, is that through a series of battles, eventually Alexander the Great, not trying to fulfill prophecy from Ezekiel, but Alexander the Great became so frustrated that the city of Tyre would not accept him as the god he believed he was. Since they didn't open the city gates to him, his anger against them grew to such a level that he destroyed inland Tyre and he destroyed Sidon, and then he basically threw those cities into the sea. All of the wood, all of the rock, everything from those cities ended up going into the sea. Well, the people out on the island could see that he was basically building a causeway. And they started sending ships to attack, and so he made all kinds of deals with 
other folks who had navies, because he didn't have any navy of his own, they started protecting his army as they built the causeway. He so inspired his army that it only took them seven months to build a causeway of almost a quarter mile out to the island. And once the causeway was built, here comes the armies of Alexander. And they ended up doing exactly what God said they were going to do. Then over time, as the waves continued to lap and to hit against the uh, causeway that he built, silt and sand has continued to build up. And now it is uh, an isthmus all the way out to what used to be the island. And you can see it. There are photographs from airplanes. You can take a look at it right now. And that once great impregnable island city fell because... Ezekiel's about to say it's going to, and said it was going to become rocks where the fishermen would dry their fishing nets. And you know what the leading enterprise is on that peninsula, on that isthmus now? Fishing. And that's where the fishermen come and dry out their nets. So I really like it when the Bible says things that you can check, prophecies that seem impossible under any other circumstances. How was anybody ever going to conquer this impregnable city of Tyre? Well, sure enough, it happened because God said it was going to happen. Now, in two chapters, chapter 28, we're also going to get into a really interesting prophecy about the king of Tyre because Ezekiel is going to prophesy directly to the king of Tyre, and in prophesying against him, suddenly the language jumps from talking to a human being to what can only be described as speaking to the entity, the devil behind him. In fact, God is going to say to the king of Tyre, you were in Eden, and you were perfect in all your ways until iniquity was found in you. Well, there's no way to say that about a human. When was iniquity ever found in a human? We're all born sinners. And so the language is really, really interesting because God talks right past the human to the demonic spirit that is driving him. This is really interesting to me because when we're doing our eschatology, we also learn about an antichrist to come. And that antichrist to come, that final world ruler, we're told, is possessed by Satan himself, and that's where he gets his power and his authority. And people have asked, well, does that really mean that he's demonically possessed, or is that the devil himself working through him because he's going to do miracles, he's going to do signs and wonders, that if it were possible, even the elect were going to follow him? God's going to turn men and women over to a strong delusion so that they'll believe the lie and be condemned, so that they take his mark and they follow him. And so it helps to be looking at passages in the Old Testament, there's one in Isaiah as well, where, where God is speaking to worldly rulers and then leaps right past the human being to speak to the demonic character that's driving them. Because as we see it played out in the Old Testament, we also see it predicted in the New Testament. And the reason I think that Alexander the Great had the power and authority he did was because of the demon that drove him. And I think the authority that we're going to see in the Antichrist, where he's just going to take over world politics and people are going to bow and scrape to him and everybody's going to take his mark and all that kind of... He's just going to have an authority that is superior to any human authority. He's actually going to have a demonic influence that's driving him. So tonight is not really about eschatology, but I just want to kind of tie it all into that larger framework so that when we get to chapter 28, you can see that mix of spiritual and human at the same time. Why was Tyre unconquerable? Well, part of it was because they were being protected by demonic forces. And that God would then utterly destroy it, utterly, completely get rid of it and take it completely out of the way in human history, I find that another example of God's absolute authority even over the demonic realm. And I think it's also why Paul would say we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And the next word he uses in the Greek is cosmokratos, 
which means the rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. Well, we're going to see some of that. Then the next four chapters are about Egypt. Egypt, not surprising. Egypt had, after all, had the uh, descendants of Israel, the children of God, in captivity for 400 years and had constantly been a thorn in their side. So we kind of get the Egypt thing. I just want you to see that Sidon was equally a problem and a thorn that Israel should have wiped out long ago, but because they didn't run all the Canaanites out of their land, when they took over the land, they didn't do what God said. Tyre continued to be a problem for them until God destroyed them. Okay, that's introduction number one. There's plenty of introduction to come. The Phoenician word was Zor, which means rock. The Latin is Tyrus. That's where we get the name Tyre from. It's part of Phoenicia and one of the main cities in the eastern Mediterranean region. In 598 to 596 BC, King Jehoiakim and the Jewish elite had been led away as prisoners to Babylon. And in the 11th year, shortly after the final capture of Jerusalem, by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, 587-586, the prophet Ezekiel had the vision that we're going to read right here. He starts right out by saying exactly when it happened. This came about in the 11th year, on the first of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me saying. So we know when this was, that the prophecy occurred, and so we can compare that to when Tyre actually fell. During the time of Joel, the prophet, The Phoenicians sold Jewish children as slaves to the Greeks, and the Lord promised them retribution. This is in Joel 3, 4 to 6. It says, Indeed, what do you have to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. Also, the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, you have sold to the Greeks that you may remove them far from their borders. So there's more than one place in the Old Testament where God calls out Tyre and says that eventually the children of Israel are going to have retribution against Tyre. And at the end of chapter 28, after God has laid out all these prophecies of what's going to happen to Tyre, and then chapter 27 is basically a funeral dirge for great Tyre, and then chapter 28, he speaks to the real ruler of Tyre, and then at the end of chapter 28, God returns to the theme that we've seen over and over and over again, which is, and I'm going to restore Israel. I'm going to gather Israel from all the places I've scattered them, and I'm going to restore them. So while it looks like, at this point in human history, it looks like Israel and Judah have been permanently destroyed and taken out of their land or and are in the Babylonian captivity, God then says to the nations surrounding Israel who have gloated over the fact that Israel has fallen, God says to them, you're now all going to fall. I'm going to pour out my wrath on each of you, and then I'm going to restore Israel. So who's the last man standing? It's going to be Israel after all. I'm going to read you a little bit from the Apologetics Press. That's the website. This particular article is by a fellow named Trevor Major. Like Sidon, its mother city, 25 miles to the north, you can read that in Isaiah 23, 12, Tyre straddled both an island and the mainland. Although barren and rocky, the offshore portion occupied a seemingly impregnable position, and may have supported as many as 40,000 inhabitants. A small bay on the northern end of the island formed one of the best natural harbors along this stretch of the Mediterranean coast. Most important, the city stood at the crossroads of a worldwide trading network stretching from Europe to the Far East and as far as Asia Minor to Egypt. Homegrown products, including glassware and fine purple cloth that was favored by royalty and dyed with an extract of a local snail. 
Tyre began its rise to prominence with the plundering of Sidon by the Philistines around 1200 BC. Hiram I of Tyre, who ruled from 979 to 945 BC, ushered in sort of a golden age by uniting the Phoenician city-states under one rule, building temples to the deities like Ashtart and constructing a breakwater to create a harbor on the southern side and connecting the two ports with a canal. And in between the periods of foreign influence, Tyre continued to expand its economic reach, including the founding of Carthage in 814 B.C., This growth coincided with the reigns of Israel's most powerful kings, David and Solomon. So it is not surprising that we should find considerable contact between these two neighbors. After all, little more than a hundred miles separated Tyre from Jerusalem. In fact, the Phoenician port crops up frequently in biblical history and poetry and prophecy. David relied on Tyre's resources for building his royal palace in Jerusalem. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 5. Solomon went further, drawing on its material and skilled workmen for the construction of the great temple in exchange for some territory. You can read about that in 1 Kings 7. It is to Tyre that the repatriated exiles turned for the rebuilding of Jerusalem under the grant from Cyrus. You read about that in Ezra 3.7. Of all the rulers, Ahab went the furthest by establishing a political alliance with Tyre. Do you remember what he did? This he confirmed by a marriage to Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal. You can read that in 1 Kings 16.31. Tyre's ruler, or a high priest, who had overthrown King Phelus. As biblical history makes quite clear, this unholy compact had disastrous consequences for Samaria. I would say so. Of all the prophets, the book of Ezekiel devotes the most attention to Tyre. That's part of what we're going to read tonight, chapters 26 to 28. The revelation begins by citing the city's notorious opportunism as one reason for its ultimate demise. As noted previously, Tyrian, that means people who are from or in Tyre, Tyrian merchants had much to lose by an interruption of their regular commerce, and they could afford to buy peace with their enemies. Frequently, these treaties brought a city-state into alliance with all the other nations that were against Israel. You can read about that in Psalm 83. So despite the mutual respect that existed in the time of Hiram, the king's successors took advantage of God's people in their moments of weakness. Joel 3 talks about it. Amos 1 talks about it. Of course, divine condemnation would come on all the nations, including Tyre, that acted against the people of God. Jeremiah 25 is another place where you find that promise from God. But what is most notable about Ezekiel's prophecy is the accuracy of its fulfillment. Chapter 26 makes at least seven definite predictions that can be tested against the historical data. Now, one way that that you can tell how accurate chapter 26 is here is that if you go to just about any atheist website, pick one, they go after Ezekiel 26 because they need so badly to prove that's wrong in order for their lack of belief to be legitimate. And so when they're trying to trash the Bible, they will frequently come to Ezekiel 26 because of its amazing accuracy. For instance, it's going to say that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon will destroy the mainland or the field, says the King James portion of Tyre. That's Ezekiel 26, 7, and 8. Nebuchadnezzar II laid siege to Tyre for 13 years, beginning in 585 to 586 BC. During this time, the inhabitants transferred most of their valuables to the island. The king seized Tyre's mainland territories, but returned to Babylon, finding himself unable to subdue the island fortress militarily. That's going to come up in chapter 29. Tyre, weakened by the conflict, soon recognized Babylonian authority, which effectively ended the city's autonomy and any aspirations for a greater Phoenicia. 
Number two, other nations are to participate in the fulfillment of this prophecy. We're going to see that in verse 3. Well, sure enough, following the Babylonian period, Tyre remained in subjection to Persia from 538 until 332 B.C. Alexander the Great besieged and captured the port in 332 B.C., and Ptolemies and Seleucus Nicator and the Romans and the Muslims and the Arabs all had their turn at ruling it through the years. And after passing briefly into the hands of the Crusaders, the city was completely destroyed by the Mamluks, who were former Muslim soldier slaves, and that happened as recently as 1291. And so exactly what God said about other nations participating in the destruction of Tyre actually happens. The city is to be flattened like the top of a rock. Like Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander was stymied by Tyre's natural moat. The brilliant Macedonian, speaking of Alexander, was not so quick to give up, however. He used the building materials from the mainland city and any other rock and soil in the immediate vicinity to build a causeway to the island, and he completed his conquest of Tyre in only seven months. Number four, it's to become a place for spreading of nets, as we talked about before. The waters around Tyre were renowned in ancient times for their fishing. This was all the fame the city could claim after its complete decimation by Alexander. And like I said, to this very day, it's a fishing capital. Uh, that's what they do. Its stones and timbers are to be laid in the sea. You're going to find that as we read through chapter 26. As noted in number three above, the building of the causeway came from the remains of the mainland city. All the timbers were, in fact, thrown into the sea. Sands carried by currents have built up over time around the causeway, forming a permanent connection now between the island and the mainland. Number six, other cities are to fear greatly at the fall of Tyre. Many fortified cities in the region capitulated to Alexander after they saw the genius and the relative ease with which he captured Tyre. That's all historically accurate. The city will not be inhabited or rebuilt. Alexander sold almost all of Tyre's inhabitants into slavery, and the city forever lost its importance on the world stage. Any vestiges of strength and power disappeared with the destruction of the Crusader Fortress, which was known as Sur, as it's still known by the Arabs today. So Tyre at this point, especially after the Crusaders came in and took it over for a little bit and then they were destroyed, that's it. That's kind of the end of Tyre. Well, how could God have known that? And how over thousands of years now, it's been a couple thousand years, 2,500 years roughly, of human history, how did God know that Tyre was just never going to be rebuilt? I mean, after all, how many thousands of years ago did they manage to build these 150-foot-tall walls around the outer coasts of an island to build this impregnable city? Sure, it had to take some time, but humans did it once, and it didn't take them 2,500 years. Why didn't they ever think to do it again? Well, it's because God said it was never going to be built again. The siege of Tyre that was orchestrated by Alexander the Great in 332 B.C. during his campaigns against the Persians was against Tyre, which I said is uh, now in Lebanon, and it was the largest and most important city-state in Phoenicia. It was located both on the Mediterranean coast as well as on that nearby island. The island lay about a kilometer from the coast in Alexander's days and its high walls reached 45.8 meters, which is about 150 feet above the sea. So there, that's all your details. That's what you need to know about the background of Tyre and the importance of Tyre. And I want you to feel that so that as we look at chapter 26, you really feel how astounding it is that God is telling Ezekiel, okay, now that great city, that city that can withstand anything, prophesy against them because they have also mocked my people. So really, what can human beings do taking their best shot? What can they do against God? When God says it's over, it's over. When God decides that he's going to pick up one king and knock down another king, that's completely up to him. 
and he's in charge of the rulers of this world. Chapter 26 of Ezekiel. Now it came about in the 11th year on the first of the month that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gateway of the peoples is broken. It has opened to me. In other words, they were planning to sweep in and take the land. I shall be filled now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre. I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. And they will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. And I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. She will be a place for a spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And she will become spoil for the nations. Also, her daughters who are on the mainland will be slain by the sword. And they will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the king of kings with horses, chariots, cavalry, and a great army. He will slay your daughters on the mainland with the sword, and he will make siege walls against you and cast up a mound against you and raise up a large shield against you. And the blow of his battering rams he will direct against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Because of the multitude of his horses, the dust raised by them will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of cavalry and wagons and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that is breached. With the hoofs of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people with the sword, and your strong pillars will come down to the ground. And they will make a spoil of your riches and a prey of your merchandise. Break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses, and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. So I will silence the sound of your songs, and the sound of your harps will be heard no more. And I will make you a bare rock. You will be a place for a spreading of nets. You will be built no more, for I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, Shall not the coastlands shake at the sound of your fall, when the wounded groan and the slaughter occurs in your midst? Then all the princes of the sea will go down from their thrones, remove their robes, and strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground, tremble every moment, and be appalled at you. And they will take up lamentation over you and say to you, How you have perished, O inhabited one, from the seas, O renowned city, which was mighty on the sea, she and her inhabitants, who imposed her terror on all of her inhabitants. Now the coastlands will tremble on the day of your fall. Yes, the coastlands which are by the sea will be terrified at your passing. For thus says the Lord God, when I shall make you a desolate city, like the cities which are not inhabited, when I shall bring up the deep over you and the great waters will cover you, then I shall bring you down to those who go down to the pit, to the people of old. And I shall make you dwell in the lower parts of the earth, like the ancient waste places, with those who go down to the pit, so that you will not be inhabited, but I shall set up glory in the land of the living. I shall bring terrors on you. And you will be no more, though you will be sought. You will never be found again, declares the Lord God. Okay, so I just read the entirety of chapter 26. And here's my commentary on it. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> Everything God said happened. Everything he predicted happened. Now, knowing that, let me ask a quick question. Remembering that there are no chapters or verses 
in the uh, original writing of the book of Ezekiel, knowing that all of the details of chapter 26 actually occurred, actually happened in time, do you think there's any chance that this part won't happen? Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and shall manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they will live in their land which I gave to my servant Jacob. And they will live in it securely. And they will build houses and plant vineyards and live securely when I execute judgments upon all who scorn them round about them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Do you think there's any chance that that's going to happen given, because that's just two chapters later, given the fact that everything in chapter 26 has actually occurred? We can actually, we're at a stage in history, we're at a place in time on this planet where we can look back, knowing the writing of Ezekiel, knowing when it was written, knowing when the prophecy came about, he even gives us the date for the prophecy, knowing all of that, knowing that Tyre was at the time an impregnable city, knowing that he would predict the fall and the destruction of Tyre, and then in human history, the fall actually happened, the destruction came, and it never has been built again. Knowing all that happened, it's impossible to say that the rest won't happen. People ask me sometimes, where do you get this idea that God's not done with Israel? Well, from places like that. The word of God. And that takes us to chapter 27. Now I'm just going to read through chapter 27 because it is a lament. It is like a funeral dirge for the fall of Tyre. God is so sure that it's going to happen that he tells Ezekiel to preach a dirge over Tyre. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, take up a lamentation over Tyre, and say to Tyre, who dwells at the entrance of the sea, merchant of the people to many coastlands, say, Thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders have perfected your beauty. They have made all your planks of fir trees from cedar. They have taken a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Of oaks from Bashan, they have made your oars. With ivory, they have inlaid the deck of boxwood from the coastlands of Cyprus. Your sail was of fine embroidered linen from Egypt, so that it became your distinguishing mark. Your awning was blue and purple from the coastland of Elisha. The inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your rowers. Your wise men, O Tyre, were aboard. They were your pilots. The elders of Gabal and her wise men were with you repairing your seams. All the ships of the sea and their sailors were with you in order to deal in your merchandise. Now, the next several verses, God is just going to mention all the major trading cities in the Middle East, in Europe, and he's going to name how indebted they were to Tyre, their relationship with Tyre. Starting at verse 10, Persia and Lud and Put were in your army, your men of war. They hung shield and helmet in you. They went forth in your splendor. The sons of Arvad and your army were on your walls all around. And the Gamadim were in your towers. They hung their shields on their walls all around, and they perfected your beauty. Tarshish was your customer because of the abundance of all kinds of wealth with silver and iron and tin and lead. They paid for your wares, Javan and Tubal and Meshach. They were your traders. With the lives of men and vessels of bronze, they paid for your merchandise. Those from Beth to Garma gave horses and war horses and mules for your wares. And the sons of Dedan, hey, by the way, does anybody else want to try to pronounce these names? Because I'm perfectly willing to let any of you stand up here and take a shot at it. Verse 15, the sons of Dedan were your traders. Many coastlands were your market. Ivory tusks and ebony they brought as your payment. Aram was your customer because of the abundance of your goods. 
They paid for your wares with emeralds and purple and embroidered work, fine linen, coral, and rubies. Judah and the land of Israel, they were your traders, with the wheat of Mineth and cakes and honey and oil and balm they paid for your merchandise. Damascus was your customer because of the abundance of your goods, because of the abundance of all kinds of wealth, because of the wine of Helbon and the white wool. Vidan and Javan paid for your wares from Uzal, wrought iron, cassia, and sweet cane came among your merchandise. Dedan traded with you in saddlecloths for riding, Arabia and all the princes of Kedar. They were your customers for lambs and rams and goats. For these, they were your customers. The traders of Sheba and Ra'amah, they traded with you. They paid for your wares with all the best kinds of spices and with all kinds of precious stones and gold. Haran, Kana, Eden, the traders of Sheba and Ashur and Chilmad were all trading with you. They traded with you in choice garments, in clothes of blue and embroidered work, and in carpets of many colors, and in tightly wound cords they were among your merchandise. The ships of Tarshish were the carriers of your merchandise, and you were filled and you were very glorious in the heart of the sea. Your rowers have brought you into great waters. The east wind has broken you in the heart of the sea. Your wealth, your wares, your merchandise, your sailors and your pilots, your repairers of seams, your dealers in merchandise, and all your men of war who are in you with all the company that is in your midst will fall into the heart of the seas on the day of your overthrow. Do you see how much detail God went into? That's pretty much everybody. Say, like, yeah, you're rich and you're powerful and you're trading with everybody and everybody knows you. You've got worldwide acclaim and I'm going to take you all and drop you in the sea. At the sound of the cry of your pilots, the pasture lands will shake and all who handle the oar, the sailors and all the pilots of the sea will come down from their ships and they will stand on the land. And they will make their voice heard over you and will cry bitterly and will cast dust on their heads and they will wallow in their ashes. Also, they will make themselves bald for you and gird themselves with sackcloth and they will weep for you in bitterness of soul with bitter mourning. Moreover, in their wailing, they will take up a lamentation for you and lament over you saying, who is like Tyre? like her who is silent in the midst of the sea. When your wares went out from the seas, you satisfied many people with the abundance of your wealth and your merchandise. You enriched the kings of the earth. Now that you are broken by the seas, in the depths of the water, your merchandise and all your company have fallen in the midst of you. All the inhabitants of the coastlands are appalled at you, and their kings are horribly afraid. They are troubled in countenance. The merchants among the people hiss at you, and you have become terrified, and you will be no more. That's chapter 27. If we keep going, oh good, I've got enough time. We're now going to read chapter 28, because I want you to see the judgment on the king of Tyre, and then the judgment against Sidon, and then God wraps up by saying, but I'm going to be good to Israel. So we're in chapter 28, the word of the Lord came again to me saying, son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of a God, behold, You are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired riches for yourself, and you have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, 
and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom, and they will defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit, and you will die the death of those who are slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of your slayer, although you are a man and not God, in the hands of those who wound you? You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Okay, the first half of that chapter so far has been God speaking to the man who even identifies you are a man, but you thought you were a God. You thought you were more clever than Daniel. You thought with all your riches and all your trading, you thought that you couldn't be touched. You were brilliant in your beauty, but I'm going to take you down to the pit. But then Ezekiel takes the time to say again, the word of the Lord came to me. And this time he's going to speak to the king of Tyre and listen to the language he uses because he can't be speaking to a human being when he says this. And it's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting when you read commentaries about this part of chapter 28, the number of commentaries that, okay, hold that sentence, that, right there, comma, that, I'm going to come right back into that sentence in a minute. I don't like it when commentaries have a tendency to allegorize stuff, especially in the Bible. I believe the Bible is saying what the Bible means to say. I don't like commentaries that allegorize because they end up spiritualizing things that are actually very genuinely physical and uh, tangible and real. So I don't like allegorization pretty much across the board. But I find it interesting that most commentaries that you read, especially from a conservative view, when they get to this part of chapter 28, all of a sudden allegorize like mad in order to make it less spiritual, in order to make it more physical. In order to say, no, Ezekiel's still talking to the man. No, he's still, when he says things to him like you were in Eden, I read a commentary today that said, uh, when he says you were in Eden, what he means by that is you were sitting in splendor behind the walls of your, of your city and the sea, and, and that was kind of Edenic, and so it's kind of like you were in Eden. God doesn't say it's kind of like you were in Eden. God says you were in Eden. Here's what he says. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection. Can that be said about any man, any human? Anybody want to say they've got the seal of perfection going? Full of wisdom and perfect in your beauty. Okay, that can't be said about any 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 of you women want to say that about your husbands because we're talking about a man here. Perfect in beauty. Nothing? <laughs> really? April's not here to say yes. Oh, amen. <laughs> April's not here. Yeah. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and your sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I think the King James says you're the covering cherub. And I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Can that be said about any human being? You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways. Again, you can't say that about any man, if you're being honest. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. The NASB has until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, 
You were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you, and it has consumed you, and I will turn you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you, and you have become terrified, and you will be no more. So isn't that really, really fascinating language? Because it's a little bit of, okay, it could kind of still apply to the king of Tyre. It's still about the abundance of his trade. But then maybe God took all that time in chapter 27 to talk about the trading genius of the king of Tyre so that when he spoke to the demon that was driving him, he could also say, through the abundance of your trade, speaking of not just physical trade in order to get rich, but perhaps spiritual trade or the way that you are conducting yourself in the earth. So God ends up casting him down to the ground, causing a fire to be inside him, to consume him and bring him down to the ashes of the earth in the eyes of all who see him. And then he leaves it with, you have become terrified and you will be no more. And the word of the Lord came to me again saying, son of man, set your face towards Sidon. Prophesy against her and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I shall be glorified in your midst. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments against her, and I shall manifest my holiness in her, for I shall send pestilence to her and blood to her streets, and the wounded will fall in her midst by the sword upon her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord, and there will be no more for the house of Israel a prickling briar or a painful thorn from all them round about who scorned her, and then they will know that I am the Lord. So all of those who were goading Israel, all those that were mocking Israel, all those that were making fun of Israel, God says they're like a prickling briar and a painful thorn in their side. God's going to remove all that. And thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and shall manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they will live in their land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. And they will live in it securely, and they will build houses and plant vineyards and live securely when I execute judgments upon all who scorn them round about them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Amen. So that's chapter 26, 27, and 28 of Ezekiel. And once again, we see God's absolute sovereign control of the kings of this earth and the nations of this earth. And God has the complete ability to bring up and tear down nations as he sees fit. And he's perfectly capable of not only condemning the person, but also condemning the demons that drive the evil people of this planet. Now you will notice through all of that that at no point did the demon talk back. Nor did the king talk back. You see nothing of a conversational tone through all of this. You just see God declaring, I'm going to do that. And because I've spoken it, I'm going to do that. And that's what I'm going to do. Because this is a God who absolutely does the things he does. He doesn't try to do things. He doesn't say, I'd like to do things if you're willing, if you'd cooperate. He says, I'm going to do things And then fortunately, with these three chapters, we've gotten to see in human history how God has worked out exactly what he said he was going to do. So everything else that God has said he's going to do, I believe he's going to do. I believe in a regathering for Israel. I believe in a reestablishment of Jerusalem and that David's greater son is going to sit and rule from his throne there and that the nations of the earth are going to flow to Jerusalem. I believe that because the Bible says it, the same God who has already accomplished all these things in human history that we can already see have actually taken place. 
I believe all that. I believe that Jesus is one day going to crack the sky and come back for his church. Today would be a good day. I'm fine with this evening. I'm, I'm perfectly willing to uh, believe that God is going to do absolutely everything he said he's going to do. Because we continue to find examples of God saying he's going to do it and then actually doing it. Anything? Questions? Yes. First off, congratulations. I didn't think there's any way you were going to get through three chapters. So, uh, <laughs> I had to just read and not comment much. The way that the king of Tyre is kind of a figure of, of Satan, of the devil, is there also a correlation between the city of Tyre in chapter 27 and the great city of Babylon that's fallen in Revelation 18? If you read the two languages, it's at points it's, it's almost real like similar, isn't it? Yeah. Right. I mean, the merchants are standing there <coughs> yeah. watching the city fall, and yeah. it sounds very similar. I think the similarity is not in the two cities. I think the similarity is in the God who's destroying those two cities. Because those two cities, how do you get rich back in those days? Well, it has to be through trade and merchandise. And so I think the similarity is in the fact that God took those two cities grand, great, glorious trading cities and destroyed them. And then in Revelation, that same language is used as uh, John predicts the destruction of Babylon again and the destruction of this world system. I think that's what is, is being represented there, especially because so far, at least, there hasn't been another Babylon. But there's the religion of Babylon, which is far and wide. We see it constantly in churches that call themselves Christian. Anything else? All right, then. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.